You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. As we record this today in June 2011, we've all been following with great interest the story of the uh, killing of Osama bin Laden a month ago now in Abbottabad, Pakistan. And it's been widely reported that numerous computers and other forms of digital media were recovered from his house there. The big question, of course, is what's on Osama bin Laden's computers? Those of us outside the U.S. intelligence community don't know yet, and frankly, we probably won't know for a very long time. However, we here at the Spy Museum know somebody who has gone through two Al-Qaeda computers, one of them used by Ayman al-Zawahiri, the number two in Al-Qaeda, and another one apparently used by Mohammed Atif, the number three in Al-Qaeda. We thought we'd talk with this person today because he's got a terrific story and also because he can help us imagine some of the things that might be on Osama bin Laden's computers that the CIA is uh, analyzing and dissecting even as we speak. We have with us today Alan Cullison. He's the Moscow correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he's covered politics and security in the former Soviet Union and in Central Asia for some 15 years now. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in international reporting in 2007 for his coverage of Vladimir Putin's Russia. And in 2002, he received the Overseas Press Club Award for International Reporting for a series of stories on al-Qaeda. Uh, Mr. Cullison's al-Qaeda work was very much informed by his acquisition of two computers used by senior members of al-Qaeda. He has pretty much literally been inside al-Qaeda's hard drive. Uh, we're speaking with Alan today, uh, actually from London, uh, via Skype. So, Alan Cullison, welcome, virtually speaking, to the International Spy Museum. Thank you. Uh, Alan, so uh, after September 11th, you found yourself in Kabul, Afghanistan, in the in the fall of 2001, with no working computer kind of a handicap for a print reporter like yourself. Uh, how did that happen? Can you sort of set the stage for us here? Well, after September 11th, I was uh, sent into Afghanistan along with uh, quite a few other reporters, uh, or at least to try to get into Afghanistan. And uh, a handful of us managed to get in by traveling from the north through Tajikistan by crossing the Hindu Kush mountains. And uh, I went over the Hindu Kush in a pickup truck that I had rented from some local Afghans, and uh, while going over the Anjuman Pass, we lost the brakes, and the truck rolled down the mountainside and smashed my 
uh, laptop. So um, during the early parts of the war, I was basically writing all my stories out longhand and writing them uh, and then dictating them over the phone. And so when I got to Kabul, I was um, got to know the computer dealers there because I was trying to remedy the situation. Were there many computer dealers to be found in Kabul in 2001? No, there were, I, th- I think, two uh, memory recalls. And, and basically, back then in Kabul, there were no television sets. The only thing that, the only real electronics that you found that were quite common were radios, uh, FM or AM radios, or shortwave radios. So any time you uh, encountered somebody with a computer, it meant that they were somebody very important. And so that was what was interesting about talking to computer dealers back then. So you soon found yourself on the trail then of two computers that purportedly had been used by Al-Qaeda. How did that, how did that happen and how did you track them down? Well, basically, they, uh, there, once Kabul fell, there was a race to find out as much about Al-Qaeda as possible. And uh, uh, other newspapers were getting documents out of uh, former Al-Qaeda safe houses and writing stories about them. And I, I was, frankly, behind on that story. And so I decided to use some of these computer contacts to start searching for people who had computers to sell. And uh, it turned out that one of these fellows uh, found a uh, gent who said that he had looted a couple of computers from uh, the Al-Qaeda compound in, uh, in Kabul. And do you know uh, who these computers belong to? So once you managed to buy these things, um, how did you authenticate that they were what they purported to, to be? Well, the... Um both of them were locked by passwords. Um, there was what they were. There were two computers. There was an IBM desktop computer, and then there was a laptop computer. Um, the uh, laptop computer, I was told, was carried into the Al Qaeda office every day in a black bag by Mohammed Atif, the uh, military commander for Al Qaeda. The IBM, it wasn't clear what what was on it. Um, but so yeah, I wanted to wanted to see if this was authentic. Both of them were locked by passwords, uh, and in order to bypass a password, you can you could take a battery out of uh, the hard drive or a, a desktop hard drive that's basically the size of a you know a watch battery. And uh, so I was able to uh, bypass that password. And when it, when it, I opened up the computer, um, there were a lot of files in Arabic on the drive um, that I couldn't read, and were often password encrypted again, but there were, there were a couple letters there that were open uh, on the desktop that were in French, and it turned out that these were the uh, letters that were used to um, set up the assassination of Ahmad Shah Massoud, the Northern Alliance commander, and that, that was the big precursor to September 11th. So it was clear after looking at those letters that uh, these were important computers. These were taken from important people. Um, it wasn't clear exactly who they were and uh, who, who, uh, who these people were only became clear in the, in the following year after some pretty exhaustive research. So it was clear straight away that whoever it was who'd used these computers, it was, this was a big deal. Did you discuss this then with your editors and, and discuss uh, you know, what, if anything, beyond just pure journalism to do with these computers? Yes, I, I uh, basically what I'd uh, after discovering that the IBM was, was uh, 
valuable. Um, I, I copied it immediately and then went out and negotiated a price for the uh, laptop computer, which, which I hadn't gotten yet. Um, and then at that point, I called my editors and said, hey, I've got uh, Muhammad Atif's computer and another computer, and I'm going to come come back to the United States and we'll decipher them. And uh, at that point, they uh, became quite alarmed and uh, called U.S. Central Command, which uh, came to my hotel door, uh, hotel door and uh, said we'd really like to have those things. So you loaned them, if you will, to United States Central Command. Yes, they uh, they were handed over to the Central Command in Kabul um, in uh, early December of '01 um, after copying the IBM, and uh, but the uh, laptop was uncopied. So, did you ever get those computers back from the U.S. government? Yes, um, there, there was a we we had some uh, very interesting meetings afterwards where. Um, they explained what uh, they found uh, on the uh, where we all sort of compared notes on what we'd uh, found, and, and they explained what uh, they'd found. And of course, they they worked uh, faster than me initially. Um, they said that the IBM uh, was clearly a uh, it was a multiple use computer that uh, looked to have been. Uh, used an awful lot by Ayman Zawahri, the uh, second-in-command of al-Qaeda. And, uh, but, but it was used by a lot of other characters as well. It was used by uh, bin Laden, and uh, you know, he, he wrote some letters to Mullah Omar. He, um, there, were, um, there, there was a letter that uh, came indirectly from Richard Reed, the uh, shoe bomber, um, tried, to, tried to blow up an airliner over the Atlantic, um, and, you know, various other high-level Al-Qaeda people. Uh, the laptop computer, they said, really didn't seem to hold much on it at all. Uh, that was the one I didn't copy, and so it was not really possible for me to verify. But, but they said that it was a, a pretty new computer uh, as far as they were concerned and uh, just didn't, didn't have a whole lot on it. So I understand you got back uh, one of these hard drives through uh, almost sort of a cloak and dagger kind of meeting. Yes, that was. Uh, I mean, we got the. I, I, I had already already had a copy of the IBM desktop, and uh, I, I said that uh, well, I would I would like like the uh, laptop back in any case, and they said, well, we can uh, we can arrange that. And uh, a little bit later, uh, we got a phone call from a fellow who called himself Bert. He said he'd be driving up on the street, and he just handed it out of the car window to us, and that was it. Like something out of a movie. That's fabulous. Um, all right. So in the meantime, then, uh, you and I take it uh, a number of your colleagues are plowing through the material on the desktop computer, which turns out to be really quite extensive. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I understand there was not only quite a lot of material there, but... Some of them, as you say, were encrypted in multiple different languages. Can you talk a little bit about the process that you and your journalistic colleagues went through plowing through this material, which one has to assume would in a lot of ways parallel what the CIA would have been doing uh, with this same material? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there were several levels of encryption on, this, uh, on these hard drives. Um, one basic one that we had to get through were, were simply the passwords. Um, every, every, there were about... Uh, nearly a thousand uh, Microsoft Word documents on the uh, uh, IBM hard drive. Um, and 
they were locked through very, you know, uh, some pretty sophisticated encryption systems. You could break these passwords by running a whole lot of passwords against them, literally millions, and that took some time. So what I ended up doing was hiring somebody with a whole array of computers to run these passwords, and it usually it took uh, two or three days in order to get it done, even when you had a whole array of computers. Um, at that point, we would be able to open up the Arabic file, then we'd have to get it translated, but then there was a new problem in that these uh, files were written with code names and written in this sort of curious elliptical language that made it sound like they weren't really running a terrorist organization, but they were just running some kind of farming operation. Farming so, operation. Yes, they said they were raising cotton and... Um, you know, depositing money in bank accounts and that some of their workers um, were having trouble with, um, you know, health problems and had to go into the hospital. And uh, somebody who was funding the farming operations was named the contractor. Now, eventually it became clear that what they were really talking about were terrorism operations, and the contractor was the code name for bin Laden. When somebody got sick, that usually meant he got arrested, and when they were hiring a doctor to take care of him, they were hiring lawyers or finding somebody to bribe the judges to get him out. These were all uh, letters that were written to and from Kabul to various uh, um, cells you know, in places like Albania, Yemen, London, Egypt, and, you know, other very in Pakistan, of course, and uh, different parts of Afghanistan. Aside from Arabic, what languages did you find on this Al-Qaeda computer? Well, there were some, Arabic was the predominant language. There were some in Farsi. There was uh, um, French, Tagalog. Um, but I think that, that was about it. Um the Arabic was the by far the most uh, frequently used language. So you have uh, at some point then wrote a series of articles for the Wall Street Journal and also an article for uh, the Atlantic Monthly, articles which uh, attracted a, a lot of attention. And I, and I can say that uh, uh, around about this time I was actually working on the terrorism problem uh, as a government contractor and I used your materials as a matter of fact. How long was it um, before – uh, you were able to derive enough meaning from this, uh, you know, a huge mass of stuff encrypted and in multiple different languages. So how long was it before you were able to really start writing, to have some real understanding of what was going on here that you could convey to readers? It, it took a couple of weeks to even write an initial story that, that said um, that these were some computers that um, belonged to al-Qaeda because – because, you know, opening up a computer like this, it was, it was really kind of a disorienting experience. You, you uh, like, like I said, you know, first of all, in Arabic, secondly, they're writing about, uh, allegedly writing about farming. They're all using sort of queer names for one another. So in order to really get to the bottom of it, what you had to do was you had to find some former terrorists themselves who worked inside this organization and who understood what a lot of these code names were. Now, um, when I did have the opportunity to speak to some of the people from the CIA about this uh, 
material, they, they told me that they found essentially five things that were of value on the uh, IBM desktop. One was a uh, uh, this uh, casing report writ written by uh, Richard Reed for various targets, which, which essentially uh, showed that Richard Reed worked for Al-Qaeda, and that, that was a big revelation. Um, there was another casing report of the U.S.-Canada border uh, looking for targets that they might blow up or you know, attack people in to just basically wreak havoc along that border. There was a system of encryption for message traffic, um, the, the system that, that Al-Qaeda used to disguise its traffic. And then there was essentially uh, a dictionary or a key for that encryption system. And then finally, there was a uh, list of Al-Qaeda members, um, something like 150 of them, half of which they they'd said they hadn't heard of before. So there were a couple of topical things we could pursue. For instance, for instance, we could write about Richard Reed. But in order to get a real history of the arc of Al-Qaeda, it was necessary to basically transfer, trans, uh, translate all these documents, find out who was who and all these various code names, and put all the documents in uh, chronological order so that you could get a history, uh, basically a history of the organization. And then that, that was a very time-consuming process. We essentially put together about three or four volumes worth of documents uh, that, that became, became kind of the, uh, the Bible for writing about these people because you, you could go and look at what they were doing in 97, 98, 99, up, up right up until uh, 2001 uh, after the attacks even, those correspondence. It, it took a long time. Did I understand you to say that you had former Al-Qaeda members who helped you understand the phraseology and the code terms that they were using? Yes. Um, going, yeah, I mean, in, in order to do some of this work, I had to go to Egypt um, and find people who had been arrested and ousted from the organization and were interested in speaking about it. Uh, there were people who were also helpful in London, um, who were helpful. I mean, Al-Qaeda was, Al -Qaeda was not a, a static organization who, that uh, immediately killed somebody when they left it. Um, there are people who go in, um, work there for a while, and then leave because they, because they had spats or disagreements with people. There were different uh, organizations that went into Al-Qaeda and then got disillusioned with what it was doing and decided to leave. And so the various, there weren't a whole lot of those people around, but, but there were a few and they're absolutely essential to uh, understanding hard times like this. So as you started reading through these documents and putting them in order and understanding, as you say, the, the arc of Al Qaeda's history, uh, what did you learn about the relationship between um, Al Qaeda and the Taliban, their, their hosts in Afghanistan? They, they had, um, they, the Al Qaeda and Taliban used to put together, a, put up a very good face of, of, of being absolutely united. And, um, um, but behind the scenes, there were all sorts of problems because, precisely because of, um, Osama bin Laden's interest in international terror, there, there, there was a whole, 
element in the Taliban that really just didn't want al-Qaeda around because it caused problems for them. It uh, was isolating them internationally. Uh, there, there was, there seemed to be a great deal of trouble between the Taliban and Al Qaeda um, up until the, uh, well, well, there, there was, there seemed to be quite a bit of trouble between Al Qaeda and the Taliban up through '97, and I believe it was 1998 when they had the Africa Embassy bombings. Uh, after that, when we launched missile strikes on them uh, in Afghanistan. That really seemed to solve a lot of the uh, problems between them because Mullah Omar became uh, quite offended with the United States for taking that step, and uh, um, they really kind of closed together. Um, we drove them together with our military action is what the document that, said to you. That, that, that really appears to have been the case. Yeah, they, they – there was a great deal of acrimony uh, between them up to that point and mutual suspicion. And that was, in a lot of ways, it was, that, that was a recurrent theme of bin Laden and Zawahiri, that, that there was a, that by striking out at the U.S., they were always expecting the U.S. to strike back, and that would actually make them all stronger because everyone would perceive the, the U.S. As, as a great enemy. Um, the, the, there, there was an enormous debate in al-Qaeda at the time about whether, whether they should choose attacking the near enemy, that is Arab governments, or the far enemy in the United States. And basically what they did was they, they settled on the far enemy. And that was the strategy of the embassy bombings, the bombing of the coal, and uh, the, 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 the warship, the coal, and ultimately September 11th. You've written that some of the most interesting and important things that you found on these computers related not to al-Qaeda's strengths, but rather to its weaknesses, and that you really came away with a sense of, of, of yes, this is a powerful organization, but it has its limits, and it's made up of people with you know, very human foibles and, and, and rivalries. Can you talk a little bit about that, you know, the weaknesses of al-Qaeda? Yeah, that was one, one of the most surprising things about it was um, – when you talk about acrimony, there, there wasn't just acrimony between the Taliban and al-Qaeda, but there was a lot of acrimony within al-Qaeda itself. Uh, there, there were constant tension and friction over money, uh, the lack of it, um, the uh, mutual um, the accusations on, um, from the deputy head of al-Qaeda, Ayman Zawahri, towards his subordinates, you know, for, you know, spending $5 on a phone call, uh, forcing them to write, um, you know, uh, uh, accounting reports where they, they would report $2 spent on a tire inner tube. Uh, that they were really, at, at a certain point, really hurting for money. And this, these, but this was specifically one branch of al-Qaeda, the Egyptian jihad uh, branch. And these these people were extremely important to Osama bin Laden in the end, and they, um, I, I think it's pretty clear from reading, it became clear from, from reading the computer that these people joined him because they were really running out of money, um, and the uh, decision to yeah strike the far far enemy was. In some ways, a big fundraise in in their minds a, a uh, fundraising opportunity. They, they talked about it as PR, 
as a uh, great opportunity to give themselves publicity and, and take them sort of their franchise to an international level. You also found, uh, as I understand it from reading your article, a good bit of information about al-Qaeda's biological weapons program. Sort of looking back on that in sum of what you learned about that, did that represent more uh, al-Qaeda's strengths or that, was that also a, an example of al-Qaeda's weaknesses and of, of there being less there than one might imagine at first blush? No, I think their, their biological weapons program was definitely an example of how they had horrific ideas but really couldn't take them anywhere, uh, either because of lack of expertise or lack of money. I mean, ultimately, they did do something really horrific with September 11th, but, but they did try to develop biolog- biological and chemical weapons and, and failed utterly. I, I think at one point they managed to uh, put together mustard gas and gas and dogs that they uh, had tied up um, near one of their training camps. Essentially, they, um, after working on this for a while, uh, they um, tried, they, they decided that they, they had no, absolutely no opportunity, no, no chance of building a uh, biological weapon, but possibly they could make some chemical weapons. So they researched chemical weapons, but the only um, information that they had were really, really came from Western textbooks on this subject and all the uh, technologies that they were using were dated back to World War One or World War II even. Um, you know, they, they never found a delivery system or a uh, system of uh, dispersing uh, chemical weapons that was really viable. Drawing on your background then, this amazing experience you've had uh, rooting through al-Qaeda's computer system uh, used by some of the most senior members of al-Qaeda, in fact, uh, even occasionally Osama bin Laden himself. Would you care to speculate on how important to the counterterrorism effort uh, you think the recovery of the computers and the disks and the digital media from Osama bin Laden's house a month ago is likely to be? Is this likely to really be important or is this simply something that's going to allow uh, – us to sort of color in ex post facto the history of al-Qaeda and not really lead us forward in terms of investigations or military operations? I, th- I think it'll definitely uh, be important. Um, I mean, how important will depend on how important bin Laden was. I, I think that bin Laden was probably um, isolated and to a very large extent because uh, Al-Qaeda had become a franchise rather than an, an, an almost an idea, a, a terrorist idea that, uh, that, that operated, where, where, whose various cells operated independently um, without any order from bin Laden. That, that fact might make bin Laden's own importance here limited. But in any case, um, the fact that uh, bin Laden had all this information almost certainly confirms that there are telephone numbers, there are addresses, there are maybe scans of passports that uh, link people to him. That, that, that there are all kinds of leads that uh, can come from come from a discovery like this. I mean, one of the one of the interesting discoveries that came from the computer that I found, for instance, was. Uh, Ayman Zawahri uh, mentioned that he had been arrested in Russia in, uh, when, when I think it was 1996. And, 
because of that, I was able to go down to a region in Russia and find a scan of his passport with all the stamps of where he went over the years. The CIA, the U.S. Central Command, presumably has all sorts of uh, information like that right now of the travel of uh, bin Laden's operatives, um, you know, who he was uh, consorting with. I, there, there are all sorts of strings to pull on, and I, I can't really imagine how anybody working in the organization could feel safe after, uh, after them cleaning out, cleaning out his house like that. Well, Alan, I really appreciate you discussing this with us today. As I say, I think you're probably unique among people outside the realm of government itself in terms of having had access to these kind of really intimate secrets, uh, both you know banal and also dramatic, uh, from al-Qaeda. So we really appreciate you discussing this with us, and uh, best of luck to you in your future uh, repertorial work. Thank you very much. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.